0: All right. Good morning, brothers and sisters. Let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to the book of Amos. Uh, If you're using the Black Pew Bible in front of you, that's on page 767. And if you don't have a Bible, you're certainly welcome to take that Bible home with you. Hey, Mike, can you turn my mic up a little bit? I'm not really hearing myself very much. Thanks, man. Before I jump into the sermon, let me uh, preemptively apologize. When most everyone was enjoying Thanksgiving, I was laying half dead on my couch with norovirus. So if this morning's sermon seems like it was written by a person on the verge of death, it's because it was. So let's just all bear with each other and get through this this morning. All right. Uh, I don't really know much about classical music, but uh, the little that I do know, one of my favorite composers is Frederick Chopin. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. I'm in Alabama. I probably don't have to, but I want to give it my best effort. Uh, he was a famous Polish, famous Polish composer and piano virtuoso. Uh, you, you probably know his most famous song, The Funeral March, and if I would have thought of it, I would have had Grant at the piano to play it. You can't play it? You, you can play it? Okay. Uh, it's a dramatically dark song, and because of that, it's been played on numerous TV shows and movies, uh, but it's also been played at many thousands of funerals, including the funerals of various heads of states like John F. Kennedy and, ironically, Joseph Stalin. Perhaps most interestingly is the, the fact that uh, the funeral march was actually pl- played at Chopin's funeral himself. So I wonder what it would be like to uh, be buried to a funeral song that you yourself wrote? And then as I asked myself that question, I realized, well, he would have no realization that that was happening because he's dead. But this morning's text kind of hits on a very similar idea, this idea of hearing a funeral dirge when one wouldn't expect to hear it, or in a a strange way. So imagine yourself on your way to worship God at the temple as an ancient Israelite. You're in the northern kingdom, as we have been in the book of Amos. So you're not at the true temple. You're maybe at Bethel, maybe you're at Dan, and you're on your way to the temple. And as you get closer to the temple, you hear a funeral dirge playing, a song for a recent death. And you stop and you scratch your head and you think, well, that's, that can't be right. I haven't, I don't remember anybody dying recently. And as you get closer, you start to hear the words of the song playing more clearly, the music more loudly. And then you realize that something's very wrong. Because now as you come right upon the music, you realize that this funeral dirge is being played for you. Your death is a song that is being sung about. This may seem like something out out of an episode of The Twilight Zone, but it's not. It's actually directly from our text this morning. Look at verses 1 through through 3 in Amos chapter 5. Hear this word that I take up over you in lamentation, O house of Israel. So the Lord is telling them, hey, listen to this lamentation. That's a song that would be sung for people at a funeral. And then he goes into the verse of the song in 2 and 3. He says, fallen no more to rise is the virgin Israel, forsaken on her land with none to raise her up. For thus says the Lord God, that city that went out a thousand shall have a hundred left. And that which went out a hundred shall have ten left to the house of Israel. The nation of Israel has been under severe judgment from God, as we've seen in the first four chapters of the book of Amos. And the Lord has said, the time has come. It's time for you to be disciplined. I've rendered my verdict. Uh, The Assyrians are going to come down and wipe you out and carry out my judgment on the land. Well, here God begins to sing the song of the funeral over them before the time comes to pass. Let's read the rest of the text together and then we'll jump in for our four points this morning. Let's start in verse four. For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, seek me and live, but do not seek Bethel and do not enter into Gilgal or cross over to Beersheba, for Gilgal shall surely go into exile and Bethel shall come to nothing. Seek the Lord and live, Lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph, and to devour with none to quench it for Bethel. O you who turn justice to wormwood, and cast down righteousness to the earth. He who made the Pleiades and Orion, and turns deep darkness into the morning, and darkens the day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea, and pours them out on the surface of the earth, the Lord is his name. Who makes destruction flash forth against the strong, so that destruction Comes upon the fortress. They hate him who reproves in the gate, and they abhor him who speaks the truth. Therefore, because you trample on the poor, and you exact taxes of grain from him, you have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. For I know how many are your transgressions, and how great. Are your sins, you who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe, and who turn aside the needy in the gate. Therefore he who is prudent will keep silent in such a time, for it is an evil time. Seek good and not evil, that you may live. So that, and so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you, as you have said. Hate evil and love good, and establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord, in all the squares there shall be wailing. In all the streets they shall say, Alas, alas! And they shall call the farmers to mourning and to wailing, those who are skilled in lamentation. And in all vineyards there shall be wailing, for I will pass through your midst, says the Lord. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant and infallible word. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, what we trust in this morning is not ourselves. I don't trust in my ability to speak well, Lord. I don't trust in our congregation's ability to hear well. We pray that you would help us to trust in the power of your word used by your spirit for the glory of your name to make us more like your son Jesus Christ this morning. We have hearts that are expectant and hopeful that you will do this very thing for us because we ask in your son's name and because of his blood which has forgiven us of all of our sins, amen. Okay, four points for you this morning. Number one, Israel's idolatry and injustice. Israel's idolatry and injustice. Point number two, Israel's superstition israel's superstition point number three israel's god and point number four israel's repentance point number one israel's idolatry and injustice so you might think that after four chapters in the book of amos where the lord is sort of systematically laying out the charges against his people where he's basically just been telling them about themselves and how corrupt they are and how unjust they are and how unholy they are. You would think that we'd be about at the point where he would let up off of the gas pedal, but no, he, he's not. In this morning's text, the Lord once again tells his people that they are guilty of injustice of various kinds, from bribery to silencing prophets to taking advantage of the poor. Let's just look at the, these charges uh, starting in verse 11. Verse uh, 11. We, yeah, therefore, because you trample on the poor and you exact taxes of grain from him. So we've already talked about that. But just again, we see that the Lord is saying, listen, you guys, you're not loving your neighbor. You're taking advantage of your neighbors, especially the weakest of, of your neighbors. Uh, in verse, uh, we can go back up to verse 10. It says, "They speaking to, of the people of Israel, they hate him who reproves in the gate and they abhor him who speaks the truth. This one's a little difficult. Uh, The gate is the part outside of the city in ancient Israel where a lot of the elders of the city would meet and render judgments about about certain matters in the land. So a lot of the bribery of judges in order to to tip the, the, the scales of justice, they would have happened at these city gates. And apparently, in verse 10, there are people there in the gates who are reproving that. That is, they're rebuking this unjust act. This is probably the prophet's that we learned about earlier in the book of Amos that that were being silenced by the people of Israel. And it says here that they silenced them because they hated them. They were being unjust at these city gates and they knew that they were being unjust and anybody who would come and try to rebuke them for their lack of justice, they, they didn't like that. So they would shut them up. They would silence the whistleblowers. Verse 12, again, we see bribery. For I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins You who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe and turn aside the needy in the gate. So, on the one hand, you're using your wealth to do injustice in the land, and on the other hand, you're actively turning away those who probably need your money, you know, instead of you using it for those unjust purposes. So, in the beginning of our sermon series in the book of Amos, we talked about how all of this uh, idolatry, excuse me, all of this injustice in the land of Israel it all flows downstream from idolatry, right? We asked the question, how did Israel get here? And we saw that, well, they got here because they stopped worshiping the true God of the Bible who is righteousness, who is just. And when they turned away from him and they turned to false gods who had no ethical foundation for righteousness and justice, they began to live their lives according to that bad religion. I think you can see that again this morning in verses 4 and 6 and verse 14 by doing a little, bit of reverse, a, little, a little bit of reverse logic there, reverse engineering of the text. Look there in verse 4. Uh, For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, Seek me and live. Now go down to verse 6. Seek the Lord and live. Now go down to verse 14. Here he says... Seek good and not evil, that you may live. So it seems like in God's mind, goodness is a synonym for himself. He is goodness, He is the the foundation for all of our ethics and morality. God is righteous. And so, if these people want to have any chance of being righteous, They have to stop serving gods who are unjust and capricious and malicious and disinterested and distant, and they need to return to the God of the Bible who is goodness in his very nature. And that's the the crux of the matter. Now, one of the questions we have to ask, again in this text, we already asked it earlier uh, in our time in the book of Amos, is why does Israel feel so confident and their relationship with God in light of their injustice, in light of their idolatry. Why do they feel safe even though everything that they're doing should lead them to feel unsafe towards God? Well, we already saw one reason back in chapter 3. One reason why the Israelites felt safe when they should have felt very much in danger, they should have felt the urge to repent, uh, was because they were God's elect people, right? They thought, oh, we're the sons of Abraham, you know, God's never going to do anything to us. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you know? Well, this morning's text shows us another reason why they have misplaced confidence, and that's their superstition. And that's what we're gonna look, about, look at in uh, point number two, Israel's superstition. Uh, Jesus, uh, neither Jesus nor the apostles ever gave any indication that the city of Rome was going to be a significant uh, geographical space for the church. Jesus never said Rome is a special city and there the the throne of the Pope will, will lie. The apostles never said that Rome was going to be more important than any other city in the Christian kingdom that Christ came to establish. Nevertheless, from the earliest days of the church on for several centuries... Rome came to be a center of significance, and especially in the West, right? There's a couple of different reasons for that. Rome was a center of political power for a long time. There was the conversion of a popular emperor there to Christianity, so that only helped ramp things up. Rome was also particularly wealthy, so they were able to give a lot of money to various things in the life of the early church. But what happened uh, soon after that kind of undermined all of Rome's significance, And when I say soon, I'm using a relative term here. In the year 410 AD, Alaric led the Visigoths down through the Germanic state into the the land of Italy, right to the gates of Rome. And in August of that year, uh, Rome was sacked. Rome fell to the Germanic horde. Now, the Christians that had come to think that Rome had some sort of divinely appointed significance, they were shocked They were crushed. They couldn't believe that Rome had fallen, God's heavenly city. You can listen to the words of one of the early church fathers, Jerome, as he writes about the sack of the the heavenly city. This is what he says. I was wavering between hope and despair and was torturing myself with the misfortunes of other people. But when the bright light of the world, speaking of Rome, was put out, or rather when the Roman Empire was decapitated, the whole world perished in one city. Who would believe that Rome, built up by the conquest of the whole world, had collapsed, that the mother of all nations became their tomb? Because many Christians thought that Rome was a heavenly city, they thought that nothing bad would ever happen to it. And because they were Christians and they thought they had a special connection to Rome by way of their Christianity, they thought that Since nothing bad would ever happen to Rome, nothing bad would ever happen to them. As long as Rome's standing, everything is going to be okay. Well, that has everything to do with our text this morning. It seems like the people of Israel had a superstition about some of their holy cities. You can look at verse 5 and see several of these. Verse 5, the Lord says, Seek me and live, but do not seek Bethel. And do not enter into Gilgal or cross over into Beersheba. He's saying, listen, I'm going to bring judgment on you and don't think that you can go over into these holy lands and, and find escape from my discipline there. And there's a reason why the Israelites thought that these cities were special cities. There's a reason why they had given too much significance to these lands. They have actually a very rich history biblically. So Bethel has significance for a couple of really important reasons. It was a place where Jacob met with the Lord on two separate occasions. It's the place where he received the name Israel. You read about that in Genesis 28 and Genesis 35. Gilgal was the first place that the Lord set up an encampment right before having his people enter into the promised land. It was also where the people rededicated themselves to the Lord before they entered into the promised land. It was also the place where the Lord spoke personally to Joshua and assured him of victory as the people were beginning to enter into the promised land. You could read about all of that in Joshua chapter 4, chapters 4 through 6. And then you have Beersheba. The Lord spoke to Isaac at Beersheba. It was also the place where the Lord spoke to Joseph, reassuring him about his trip to go down into Egypt for the sake of food. Joseph was, uh, excuse me, uh, Jacob was not really sure, should I go down Uh, with my sons and see about getting food? Well, the Lord says, go ahead, Jacob, it's fine. So there's a lot of significance for these cities for the people of Israel. Nevertheless, even though there may have been honorable reasons for the Israelites to value these cities, to to have a sort of reverence for these cities, uh, by the time of Amos, uh, reverence had grown into idolatry and superstition these cities had come to function as sort of geographical rabbit's feet. You know, as long as these cities stand, everything is going to be okay. As long as I can make my way to Beersheba or to Gilgal, I know that I will escape the wrath of God. But it seems like from the way the Lord talks about these these cities, they are not holy to him. Look at verse 6. Seek the Lord and live. Lest he break out like a fire in the house of Joseph, uh, and it devour with none to quench it for Bethel. So, and before that, he talks about in verse five Bethel coming to nothing. He talks about Gilgal in verse five going into exile. It seems like the the Lord does not consider these lands to be holy for any particular reason. It seems like for the Lord, these lands were special only insofar as there was a special event of faith taking place there. But if that faith is noticeably absent, then that plot of dirt doesn't really mean anything to God. He's very happy to raise all the buildings and to have something else take its place. Israel had come to place their confidence in the wrong things. Earlier we saw that they placed their confidence in their election when they should not have. Here they place their confidence in certain special holy sites or cities. So let's just stop and take a moment and ask ourselves where we might be misplacing our trust. Let's ask ourselves in what things we might have misplaced spiritual confidence. So we can, we'll start outside of the church and then we'll, we'll sort of work our way back in, right? Because this isn't just a Christian problem, this is a human being problem, All of us know that there's a problem between us and God, whether we repress that truth, as as in Romans 1 kind of way, whether we repress that truth or not, we all intuitively know that there's a God who made us, who's holy, and he loves us. We've sinned against him. There's a problem between us, but we have to figure out some way to get rid of the cognitive dissonance of our lives. So we try to say, everything's gonna be okay between me and God because of this. So in many false religions... You see, for example, you can take Judaism, the religion that has refused to accept Christ as the Messiah and as our, sa- as our Savior. They were prone to say, we trust in our lineage. We think that we're okay with God because we are sons of Abraham. You remember Jesus came and he preached repentance and he said, listen, everybody better repent before the ax is laid at the root. And all the Jews, every time he would say that, they would, their main response was like, uh, does this guy know that we're sons of Abraham? Everything's gonna be okay for us. And God says, no. You think about our Muslim friends who feel like if they can practice their five pillars, including making a trip to their own holy land, Mecca, that hopefully, maybe, everything is going to be okay. They tend to be more fatalistic, but even in their fatalism, they say, we, we still don't know that God's gonna forgive us and let us into paradise, but man, we can have more confidence that we're likely to enter into paradise if we're faithful to fa- practice these five pillars. You can think about our Roman Catholic friends who trust in their combination of faith and works, which is no faith at all. It's anti-gospel. Now let's pick on some of our own people. You think about some reformed people. They trust in their own knowledge. They trust in their doctrinal repertoire. You know, their head is full of knowledge about God, and they think that they're going to be okay with God. But the thing is, is we're not saved by knowledge of God. We're saved by faith in God. And if we don't actually love God, it doesn't matter if we know a lot about God. For many evangelicals, we, especially the last like, 50 years, we tend to trust in things like our baptism or our church membership. We think, I went down, I walked the aisle, I let the pastor who kind of pressured me into doing it, or my friends who pressured me into doing it because it was the cool thing in the youth group, I walked down the aisle, I got dunked under the water, I know that I'm okay with God. Well, the only problem with that is the Bible doesn't say that getting wet saves you. Getting wet is a symbol of the salvation that should exist in your heart. It doesn't matter if, if some pastor somewhere told you to write a sp- specific date in the front of your Bible and said, don't ever forget this date. This is the day you were saved. No, friends, that is not where we find our confidence. The only thing that we can find our conf- confidence in is our active obedience and faith in Christ and his finished work for us on the cross, Pentecostals tend to trust in their emotional experiences. Some churches trust in their historic building. You know, God would never be upset with us. You know, we're the old, we're, we're, we are really First Baptist. You know, everyone else, they say that they're the First Baptist, but we are the first First Baptist. Other, other churches, I mean, people just tend to trust in their entire denomination. You know, they think, oh man, this denomination is God's special chosen denomination. So I'm sure that everything is going to be okay between me and God no god has not appointed any denomination denominations are fine they're very useful but they can also can be very dangerous so you should think about denomination like a skin on a snake it's useful for a time but it can also be shed and as a matter of fact Almost every denomination has gone defunct or derelict or heretical at some point in time. So with denominations, we should be happy to celebrate what's good while we have it, and we should be ready to shed that skin if we need to for the sake of faithfulness to Christ. So going back to Jerome and what he wrote after the fall of the city of Rome... We see there that he had misplaced confidence, right? The fact that Rome fell and he was just falling apart shows us that he, his, his confidence was in some way misguided. Well, he wasn't the only church father writing around this time. There was another church father writing a couple hundred miles south of Rome uh, and his name was Augustine and he was located in the city of Hippo in North Africa. And uh, this is what he had to say in response to Jerome's chicken little the sky is falling attitude. Do not lose heart, brethren. There will be an end to every earthly kingdom. If this is now the end, God sees. I think that's the right attitude. In many ways, the fall of Rome was a blessing to the church. Because it allowed them to recenter their trust. It allowed them to recenter their confidence. A lot of people had to say, okay, if Rome is fallen, but Christ still reigns, then, okay, I probably need to refocus on Christ. In many ways, when Assyria, in about 40 years after this, comes down and destroys all of these cities and destroys the northern tribes of Israel, it's not good in many ways because it's painful, but in other ways it is good because it helps Israel to recenter their confidence to regain their trust and to place it in its proper perspective. And so I just want to ask you this morning what you think you might be trusting in other than the finished work of Christ. What might the Lord be getting rid of in your life? What might he be showing you even through this sermon this morning? Man, Sean, as you said that or as you said that, I think... I recognized in my own life, I was placing my trust in my denomination or in my baptism or in my experience or whatever the case, in my own good works. And if you feel the Lord destroying that in your life, even though it may be painful, it's a good thing. It's a good kind of pain. And the Lord is using it to help you trust more and more in his son and the finished work that he accomplished for you on the cross. Point number three, Israel's God. Israel's God. In verses eight and nine, we see God uh, flexing his glory muscles. You know, like a bodybuilder up there in a Speedo, all shiny. He's hitting that. No? Okay, I probably shouldn't compare God to a bodybuilder. But he's flexing his glory muscles for the people of Israel. Look in verse eight, and we're just sort of walk through them. In verse 8, God is showing off the fact that he places the constellations in the sky. He who made the Pleiades and Orion. In the second half of verse 8, he's showing off the fact that he maintains the creative order, right? And he turns deep darkness into the morning. God's in control of these celestial bodies that control the lights of our existence. In 8c, the third part of verse 8, He causes the rain to fall. In verse 9, we see that he destroys the strong, right? Even though there's a fortress, which is supposed to be the epitome of strength, God is stronger than that. And he comes and can destroy it. But not only that, we see something else in verse 12 about Israel's God. We see that, that he sees the injustice in the land. Look at verse 12. For I know, that is, you know, like a parent who is talking to their kid. Their kid thinks that they're getting away with something. They think that just because the parents haven't seen that they don't know, God is saying, I know and I see. For I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins, you who afflict the righteous and who take a bribe and who turn aside the needy in the gate. I think God saying this to the people of Israel accomplishes two things. I think the first thing that it accomplishes is it's meant to strike fear into the heart of the oppressors. It's meant to make those who do injustice afraid. And they probably they probably didn't feel afraid because, because we don't see God all the time, because he's not like a police officer standing there wearing a badge with a gun and some handcuffs ready to arrest you. We think, oh, you know, he's, he's not here. So we, we just sort of assume the idea that God doesn't actually see us doing our unjust deeds. And because of that, we're not afraid. One of the main reasons why criminals do their dirt at night is because there's less likelihood that they will be seen. And so they're not as afraid. You don't go and break into a car in broad daylight. If you do that, you have to have nerves of steel, you know. But it's a lot more easy to break into a car that's parked in an alley in a lonely, desolate street where there's no light, and you're pretty confident that no one is going to see you as you do your dirt. It's one of the reasons why some of the, uh, one of the easiest ways to deter crime is to just put street lamps places. In South Africa, they did this study where they showed that violent crimes fell by over 50% in certain neighborhoods just by putting a street lamp there. Because people are afraid to be seen when they do their their dirt. And so the people of Israel, they have felt like God can't see them. Like God doesn't see them. And God's coming and he's saying, no, I do see. I see. And this also has to be a tremendous comfort to those who are suffering injustice. Because most of the time, people who are suffering injustice feel like no one sees them. They feel like they're the only ones who know. They're the only ones who understand what's happening. And so as they hear this rebuke towards those who are doing injustice in the land, they they feel comforted. They think, yes, yes, okay, he does see. He does know. He hasn't forgotten about me. He hasn't ignored my suffering. But not only does God see the the sins of the unrighteous, this verse also tells us that he measures them. Look back at Him. Look, at, look back at verse 12. It says, For I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins. So the Lord is saying, I know, I know all of what you're doing and I know how severe it is. I know the kind and the quality, the quantity and the quality. Now, not only does God measure very accurately, he also promises that these injustices will not stand. Look at verse 11. He says, Therefore, because you trample on the poor... And because you exact taxes of grain from him, you have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink of their wine. You know, friends, God created us to enjoy the fruits of our labor. When God created man and woman, he set us as kings and queens in the earth, and he told us to be fruitful, to multiply. To, to, to rule over all of creation and to enjoy all of God that is present in creation. So what that means is that we should work hard and enjoy good meals and warm houses and fun vacations and all the fulfillment that can come from our hard labor, especially in this land of the fall. But what God will not allow is for these people to enjoy the fruits of their unrighteous ways. He will not allow them to enjoy the fruits of their injustice. So he says, listen, that, that really nice house that you have, I'm not going to let you live in that. You built that house off the backs of poor people, taking advantage of them. That nice vineyard that you think you and your wife are going to you know, just stroll down, and you know, take nice walks in the afternoon in your old age. No, I'm not going to let you do that because you acquired these vin- vineyards by taking advantage of your neighbors. Now, I wish I could tell you that what God is going to do here is like an even older version of our modern renditions of, of Robin Hood, right? I wish I could say that God's going to swoop in and he's going to take away these vineyards and these ivory laden houses and he's going to give them all to the, back to the poor people who were taking advantage of in the land of Israel. But that's not what happens. What happens is, is Assyria comes down and utterly destroys uh, Samaria, the, the ten tribes. Of the North. Is that fair? I find that most of the time I ask myself that question, I'm, I'm failing to take into account the spiritual realities that come along with God's judgment. And, and really, the, 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 I had to ask myself a question as I was preparing the sermon. Was I going to take 20 minutes and teach on the justice of God and the suffering of of poor people or was I just going to note the fact that God is always righteous, he always cares, and he always does what is good and right and true and fair and he's always better to poor people than the best of us can ever be and then move on. So I think that's what I'm going to do today. I'm going to make that my, I'm going to say that my second point and we're going to move on because we just have so much more to talk about. Finally, this morning's text tells us that God is a God who takes, and when I say finally, I mean for the third point, the third thing that we learn about the, the, the God of Israel is that God takes no pleasure in the death of his people. He takes no pleasure in this discipline, and I know we've said it before, but guess what? It's in the text again this morning, so we're just going to say it again because it's in here numerous times, I assume, for our good. We need to be reminded. We need to have repetition because to repeat myself is no problem for me, and it's beneficial for you, Okay. Uh, we see this primarily through the Lord calling Israel to repentance, right? We saw in verse 4 and in verse 6 and in verse 14, again and again and again, the Lord says, seek me and live, right? I don't want you to die. That's not my desire. I'm not up here in heaven just like you know, rooting for you to disobey me and to disregard my my calls to repentance. I want you to seek me. I want you to stop doing evil because I want you to live. We saw this in this morning's text that we read that our sister Allison did a great job of reading in Ezekiel 33:11, where God says, "As I live, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. No pleasure But that the wicked turn away from his evil way and live. Turn back. Turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? In order for there to be any kind of true reconciliation, whether that's reconciliation between us as human beings or reconciliation between us and God, there has to be repentance. So this choice stands for Israel. What will you do? Will you turn from sin and turn to God? Or will you face destruction? The Lord has lovingly laid out your options. Now, you may be thinking, Sean, for the first four chapters of this book, you told us basically every week in one form or another that the Lord had rendered his judgment, that his decision was final, that he was going to drop the hammer on Israel. This was the last word. There's no going back. Well, now it seems like in this morning's text, the Lord is actually giving them a chance. It seems like his judgment isn't final, like he's not going to drop the hammer come what may. Well, if you're confused about that, I think it'll all make sense by the time we're done with point number four, which leads me to point number four, Israel's repentance. So I think we see two significant things about this call for Israel to repent in today's text. Uh, number one is that Israel's repentance Must involve active steps towards the implementation of justice in the land. So look at verse 15. It says, Hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. So, this gate where where judges are being bribed and, and prophets are being killed, you guys need to stop that. You need to fix this situation. Now, would this reestablishment of justice in the land have involved, like, restorative justice, where, like, the governmental powers of ancient Israel would have taken all of the wealth of the wicked, collected it into a pot, and redistributed it out to all the poor people who were taken advantage of? Um, I don't know. I mean, they didn't repent, so we don't know what happened, what would have happened. Now, the question is, what should have happened? It's difficult to say, and I'm going I'm I'm to share with you why. On the one hand, in certain places in the Bible, we see that that is the exact impulse of people who have come to see that they have sinned by doing injustice. They want to do restorative justice. They want to repay that which they have stolen. They want to take care of those that they have wronged. So you can see this in Luke chapter 19, verse 8, with Zacchaeus. It says, And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, The half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. That's pretty significant. His desire is not to just barely make up for the sins that he had committed. He wants to, in the same way that God has abundantly bestowed grace upon him, even though he's a sinner, he wants to abundantly restore those that he has wronged through his evil practices. And it seems like the Lord was exceptionally pleased with this response, By his response to Zacchaeus, Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham, right? So like, yeah, man, you get it. And when he's saying you're a son of Abraham, he doesn't mean you're a physical descendant of Abraham. He means it's obvious that you have the same faith that Abraham had by your desire to fix what sin destroyed. Okay, wow, it's powerful. I had this impulse when I first got saved, Everyone in the church knows my testimony. If you're a visitor, maybe we'll talk about it afterwards. But basically, I robbed a whole bunch of people all the time before Jesus saved me. And I remember, like, there's this one girl in particular. I broke into her car and stole her very expensive sound system. She's one of the few people that I robbed that I, could, I actually knew, and I thought, oh, I can actually fix this. So I went to her and said, hey, can I pay you back? Uh, one of the guys that uh, I stole a bunch of guns from, uh, like probably several thousand dollars worth of guns. I went to him and I said, hey, can I pay you back? And so working at Cracker Barrel, making tip money, I, I would bring home, you know, $101 bills and I would take half of them, put them in a rubber band, throw them in my pillow, because, you know, old habits die hard. And, and I saved it up and I could never repay him all that I, you know, I was never going to make enough money to repay him for everything that I stole, but I knocked on his door and I dumped probably like $400 worth of $1 bills, you know, <laughs> And it wasn't meant to be the petty, you know, here's $1,000 in pennies kind of thing. It was just my, it was me doing my best to fix what I had broken in my sin. And I think that that is a good and a right impulse. And there is a sense in which we must say that true repentance is not true repentance if that desire is not present. But some of the injustice I committed, I just couldn't, I couldn't fix. I couldn't go back. I couldn't restore. It just wasn't possible. You know, some of the people had died or they had moved away. You may think, well, maybe you could have given it to their family or maybe you, maybe, you know, maybe I could have done that. I'm not sure that I know the right answer about how each individual case of restorative justice should be played out. And what's, what's, what's more is that when you imagine this ethical conundrum here, right, of like how to, how to fix your wrongs, how to right your wrongs uh, individually, and then you extrapolate that and amplify it out to an entire nation and their oppression, well, now how we're going to do restorative justice becomes exponentially more difficult, right? So what would it have looked like to do justice for the people of Israel on a national level? That's really hard to say. That's, these are questions that, that nations and peoples have tried to answer in the past and that we're still trying to answer today in light of atrocities. So you think about uh, post-apartheid South Africa, trying to figure out what to do with land stuff there. You think about Christians in China trying to figure out how they can be repaid for the land that was taken from their forefathers by the communist government. You think about World War I debt repayments and the Treaty of Versailles. And you think about even in our own current conversations in the United States about reparations for slavery. And each one of these issues is just so incredibly complex. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't look for an answer because they're complex, but it does mean that we should probably recognize that God knows the answer, but we're usually just gonna be groping for it. We're gonna be searching, and we need to pray that God would give us wisdom. So now, if that just sounds like a bunch of uh, qualified, nuanced nonsense that doesn't really do anything for you, let me give you something a little bit more concrete, okay? What I can say for certain is that the best first step in any situation where injustice reigns is to fix the broken and unjust system first and then try to figure out the the restorative part later. I'm not saying forget about it. I'm not saying don't worry about it. If you you don't worry about it at all, you're not really doing justice. But I am saying fix the unjust and the broken system first. First. So like in our own country, we'll figure out the 40 acres and a mule thing later, but like right now, we need to pass a bill that says you can't own black people. Right? You know, that, that's post-Civil War stuff, right? For the post-World War I Germany, you know, we'll figure out the whole Treaty of Versailles thing, but right now, we need to stop you guys from trying to take over and kill the whole world. Believe it or not, they did it like back to back. They just tried to do the same thing again in a couple decades, for the Christians in China, you know, we'll figure out getting your church property back to you that the government confiscated, but right now, we just need the, the communist government to stop trying to kill Christians for preaching the gospel. We're gonna try to fix the active injustice right now, and we'll worry about how to put all the pieces back together later. And I think you can apply that very easily to your own life. So, for the people of Israel, maybe they... Would have, if they would have repented, they would have figured out what to do with the ivory on their houses and with the grains that they had collected from poor people. Maybe they would have figured all, all of it out and they would have fixed everything properly. But as it stands here, it seems that they continue to bribe judges, to exact unfair taxes, to silence the prophets. And they do that because there is no heart change which is what true justice has to flow out of. Look at verses 14 and 15. There the Lord says, uh, look, we're just gonna look at the first part of each verse, seek good and not evil. And then in verse 15, he says, hate evil and love good. What he's telling the people of Israel is, yes, you do need to stop doing injustice, but the only way you can do that is if you learn to love what you hate and hate what you love. You know, it's, don't you love people with super loud trucks like that? They don't drive by my house early in the morning and wake me up. Uh, it's, It's fairly common to hear people in our current political discourse argue about whether we need legislative change or we need heart change. You know, every time some civil issue comes up, it's like, we need to pass a law. And then you have people on the other side who are saying, no, we need heart change and repentance. And that's just a false dichotomy. We need both, and it's true in the land of Israel. We need both, but we should note that one is fueled by the other. True justice has to flow out of a heart that has been justified. And in this morning's text, God is saying, change your ways and change your affections. On my right arm, uh, on the inside of my elbow, I have a tattoo that says, love God and hate sin, And uh, it's one of those tattoos that I think seems sophomoric. It seems trite, kind of like, okay, what are you really saying here? That's not very profound. But uh, I got the tattoo once I came to realize that my only hope of being a good person, of being able to walk in rightness, to be able to walk in justice, is if God does a work in my heart where he changes my affections and he teaches me to love himself and he teaches me to hate sin because left to my own devices, I will love that which God hates and I will hate that which God loves. That is what sin does to us. So the question is, how can I love what I hate and hate what I love? How can I, how, Jesus does this thing where he commands our affections, but one of the most difficult questions for us to ask is, how can I change my affections? They seem like they just rise up out of me. They seem like they're just part of who I am. How can I change who I am? God knows that. In Jeremiah 13, he asks this very question in order to illustrate the point. He says, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard change his spots? And the answer to that is No. no. Therefore, neither are you able to do good who are accustomed to do evil. The thing is, you can't do it. That's why our only hope in life and death has to be Christ and his work of changing our hearts. This is why Christ came to the earth, not merely so that we would be good little Pharisees, so that we would morally get our life together. He came so that we would love him, desire him, pursue him and hate everything that he hates and that is one of the sweetest promises of the gospel later in jeremiah chapter 31 we receive this promise of the new covenant right god says listen i'm going to bring a new covenant that's not like the old covenant and in this new covenant you're going to have a new heart a heart of flesh not a heart of stone so that nobody will have to come to you and say worship the lord Your neighbor isn't going to have to come to you and tell you that because your heart will instinctively want to worship the Lord because it's been made new by God himself. That's what happened to me when Christ saved me. You know, I've told my testimony so many times that sometimes it it grows dull on me, and and that's that's bad. It's a sin, really. I mean, it, it shouldn't. And I remember I loved everything in this world but God and i hated everything that had anything to do with god i remember sitting in a i remember sitting in church as a non christian sometimes you know people would invite you and or whatever you know I, sometimes i had to go because of various programs that i was a part of and they would be like all right turn to page Two sixteen in the hymnal, and I'm like, or I could stab myself in the eye with an ice pick because this is the worst thing I've ever been through. You know, the preacher would be preaching, and he would say last point, and it wasn't the last point. He would preach for an hour longer. It was just the most horrendous. I just I hated everything about God and His Word, and I loved everything about Satan and this world. And then Jesus saved me, and my affections literally flip flop. I couldn't get enough of God. I couldn't get enough of the things of Christ. And I just had no love, no passion, no desire for the things of this world. Friends, if you're here this morning and you still love the things of this world, I want to tell you in love that you are not a Christian. I'm not saying if you never have those, I'm not saying that you're going to be perfectly aligned with Christ's desires. I'm not going to say you're never going to desire the things of this world. But I'm saying if on the whole you look at your life and you see that you don't really care about Christ, you don't really care about his kingdom, you don't really care about his will and his name being glorified, and you only care about yourself and the things of this world, you have not been known by God. But the promise of the gospel is that if you turn away from those things and if you trust in Christ and Christ alone for your eternal satisfaction, then he can change your desires and he can change your affections. And you won't have to spend the rest of your life at war and then die and face your maker where you will meet him in judgment. There's a lot of fodder here in this idea, friends. For how we minister to one another in the life of the church, husbands and wives, what, look at look what God wants from His people here. He does not want behavior modification. God is not going to be. We already saw in chapter four. God says, "Bring your ties every three days." Yeah, offer more sacrifices, whatever. I don't care. You don't love me, so it doesn't matter. Husbands and wives. We don't want to modify the behavior of our spouses. What we want is for them to love Jesus and to love us well. And then all the behavioral stuff will kind of work itself out. For parents and children, less so children to parents, but sometimes more so parents to children, what we're trying to do here is not modify our children's behavior so that they're running around like good little Pharisees who can quote all the Bible verses, who have all the Iwana jewels in their crown. We want our children to love Jesus, and we trust that if they love Jesus, yeah, they may do some dumb stuff along the way, but it'll all kind of work itself out. That's not to say we'll never have to do just some straight-up behavior modification in our marriages with our children or even in the church. Sometimes if somebody's doing something bad enough, we just need to stop that bad thing, and then we'll work on the heart later. But the ultimate aim is to fix the heart so that the behavior will follow. Look at verse 16. Therefore, says the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord, in all the squares there shall be wailing, in all the streets they shall say, alas, alas. They shall call the farmers to mourning and to wailing those who are skilled in lamentation. What he's saying is there's gonna be a big funeral and they're gonna bring all these people in to come and cry and wail at the funeral. And in all the vineyards there shall be wailing, for I shall pass through your midst. The funeral lament continues. If you're a Bible nerd, you might be interested to know that, that this chapter, verses 1 through 17, it has a chiasm. It starts with an idea, and then it has another idea, and then another idea, and then it goes back to that second idea, and then it reverts back to the first idea. Well, here we see that. We see that it begins with a funeral song, and it ends with a funeral song. And it's almost as if the Lord is saying, I've called you to repentance, but I know that you're not going to repent. I know it. I have a sovereign view of things. And so I'm going to play this sad song for you. So I want us to talk about one more thing before we close this morning. And if if it feels like, Sean, you've hit this note three or four times in the sermon, why are you doing it a fifth time? It's just because I think we need to hear it. I just think it's there in the text And maybe it didn't get through the third time. Maybe it'll be the fourth time. Maybe I need to hear it again. Maybe I'm just preaching it for myself. Look at verse 14b. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you as you have said. Well, let's take it in context from the beginning. Seek good and not evil that you may live so that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you as you have said. This is a real interesting way that the prophet Amos has decided to say this. What he's saying is you have said that the Lord is with you, but I'm telling you that he's not with you. But if you seek good, if you seek God, if you turn from evil, then he will be with you and you won't be walking in self-delusion thinking that you're okay with God when you're not. We just need to stop and realize that it is totally possible for us to think that God is with us and that we are with God when we are not. For all the kids in the church, especially my children and the children of elders, It's totally possible for you to grow up and to think that just because you went to church every Sunday that you're okay with God. But going to church is not what indicates a right relationship with the Lord. Active obedience and trust in Jesus is what indicates that you're okay with God. Do not be deceived like so many people who live and have grown up in the Bible belt. In Revelation chapter three, verse one, we see that this is not only a reality for us as individuals, but also a reality for churches. Revelation chapter three, verse one. And to the Lord, excuse me, and to the angel of the church in Sardis, write these words. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Everyone around looks at you, church of Sardis, and they think that you're alive. You're feeding the poor people. You're having Bible studies. You know, you're taking mission trips to Africa. They look at you and they think you're alive, That you're alive, but I see the innermost part of who you are as a church, and I see that you are dead. This should scare us. This should cause us to tremble as a church. On the other hand, you should know that I am greatly encouraged as I think about the life of this church. I've been here going. We're we're moving into the third year. I think it's been two and a half years. Is that right, Grant? Since we've been, since I've been at this church, and I cannot tell you how much evidence I see that this is not the case for us. So, on the one hand, I want to scare you. On the other hand, I want to encourage you because I really do see evidences of grace that we as a people are willing to walk in repentance. I see it individually in the life of the church, and I also see it corporately in the life of the church. Let me just share one example. This actually happened not under my leadership. It it happened before I came here. This church used to have a, a theology of elders that was unbiblical. And because of that, we had people in this church who were not qualified to be elders. Grant Miller led this church through thinking about that matter biblically. He taught on it faithfully and clearly. And then he brought it before the elders of the church. And they said, oh, you know what? In light of what I see in God's word, I think you're right. And so we repent and we step down. We're not going to split the church. We're not going to have a big fight about it. We're just going to repent, and we're going to follow the Lord. I still remember when Grant told me that that happened. I couldn't believe it. I went and shared it with a couple of my friends, and they were like, okay, so the church is splitting, right? And I was like, no. And they were like, so the pastor's going to get run off, right? And I was like, no. And they were like, arson? You know, somebody going to set the church on fire? No. So that's just the end of it. Yes. Yes. I couldn't believe it. That was one of the main things that that caused me in my heart to just think, "Man, I have to go be with these people," because I see evidence that God is in fact with them, because they are walking in repentance. Is God with us? Well, friends, we cannot trust in this hundred-year-old building. We cannot trust in our denomination, which is, uh, in a thousand ways, far from perfect. We cannot even trust in our pastor. We cannot trust in our budget. We cannot trust in the amount of conversions we have or any kind of religious activity. We can only trust in whether or not we are actively turning away from our sin and trusting in Jesus. And that, friends, gives me good reason to celebrate. Let's pray. Father, your word is sharper than a double-edged sword, and it cuts us deep. It pierces our souls. You have convicted us of our sin this morning, and you have given us great hope and encouragement in the gospel. You have seasoned us with grace. You have built us up, Lord, more and more into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. And as we prepare to go back out into the world, Lord, we know that we will have more of your glory to show off to those who have never seen it. We pray that that would be so. In the name of your son Jesus, amen.